Welcome to Raising Standards with Rhiannon Evans and Matt Smith, a true Roman history podcast for true Romans. Hail Caesar. Welcome to Raising Standards, an occasional rewatch podcast in which we take a fond look at HBO's Rome. I'm Rhiannon Evans. And I'm Matt Smith. This is Season 2, Episode 1, Passover. It was written by Bruno Heller and directed by Tim Van Patten. In this episode, Caesar is dead and gets cremated, Niobe is dead and gets cremated, and the political machinations of Rome continue. There we go. Good enough nutshell. Yes. As the person I was watching it with said, so Caesar isn't alive, he really is dead. (laughs) Yeah, they're not going to turn that one around. (laughs) I like how you refer to the person who is watching this with you in every episode. Keep it vague. (laughs) (laughs) It's always the same person, though. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, uh, if if I ever refer to that, I'm referring to my cat Millie. Mm. Uh, yeah. What... Yeah. She's an avid Rome watcher. Right yeah. Here. Definitely. Yes. Um, one meow review though for this <laughs> episode. No, she liked it. Yeah, she liked it. A lot of purring. So, <laughs> gather she liked it. So anyway, this episode uh, is very much a direct continuation of the last episode to the extent where I figure. They filmed some of it at the same time, especially early with the the Senate scenes and those sort of aftermath things. But at the same time, I can see subtle setups for how the rest of the season is going to play out. Oh, I'd be interested to hear what you think those are. Maybe I, I missed that. I, I remember more about this, so I'd be interested to hear what you think is is going to be happening soon. So what did you think of this episode, Rihanna? I like parts of it. I was mystified by some parts of it, as yeah. we'll see. I thought occasionally the writing went a bit off. Yeah. Some of the lines, there was, I'm sorry, I didn't write this down, but there was something that seemed very colloquial and uh, early 2000s in the way that it was phrased. Was it the Cockney guy talking about uh, no, I think Mark it was Antony's Mark Antony or Aria, Atia rather, saying, I don't know, it was some kind of get out of town type phrase. It wasn't that. Oh, okay. Um like, it was a small thing, but it struck me as a bit jarring. But, you know, it's it's clearly written by somebody who has done a lot of the writing before. So, Well, this is... Uh, Bruno Heller. This is Bruno Heller. So mm, this is the... One the, of the showrunners. The, the showrunner yeah. is the Grand Poobah. So he's written <laughs> quite... He wrote about half of the first season and will mm. continue to write a lot of the episodes. Yeah. I like the way it connected up with what has gone before. I've got another gripe coming up about a character that they miss out, which means that they have to really compress and in some parts change some of the history. Mm. But I think, again, they're doing it for simplification processes. So there's a kind of a theme uh, I think we can see here where quite often in what we know of the history, there are three people or three factions involved and they'll simplify it down to two. Okay, yeah. So with the last episode or with the kind of roundup of series one, we were talking about how Cleopatra's sister gets left out, Arsinui. I think right at the start, we were talking about how, you know, there's a Caesar and Pompey rivalry, but until very recently, there had been a third element there with Crassus. Mm -hmm. Fair enough, he's dead by that point. But we never really hear very much about him. Again, there's going to be a third character along with Octavian and Mark Antony, who I think never makes an appearance, but is quite important historically. Mm. He does make an appearance. Uh, Okay, so let's uh, move on and talk about the plot a bit more. Uh, <laughs> what have I done? Who are you referring to? Lepidus. Okay, let's move on with the plot a bit more. You, can you leave that out if I've made a big goof then? <laughs> but he needs to be here. He needs to be in this episode. Oh, okay. Let's move on with the plot a bit more. Okay. <laughs> look, look, I have a very vague memory of the season and how it unfolds, and I remember bits and pieces, but I clearly remember more than you. Mm, yes. No okay. So you see the Senate floor at the start of this episode. You see Caesar lying there in a pile of blood, and from you know my memory of the end of season one, this is the same shot. You know They didn't get Caesar in and get him to lie there again in a pool of blood. This is something that they shot at the same time. And the impression that I get from that is that Mark Antony comes out of there. So I don't know why he's gone back in after he did a runner, just to maybe check to see if Caesar was dead, but why? No offence to his allegiances, but why would they care? And then he's chased out of the forum and has to essentially fight off Quintus Pompey. Yeah. Yeah. Hang on. So have I misremembered? He goes in and sees Caesar dead, and did he run out at the end of season one? At the end of season one, Caesar gets assassinated, and he's lying there dying slash dead. And Mark Antony kind of comes in, 
sees all the senators there covered in blood and holding their knives and kind of goes, whoa, this is a bad room for me to step into and just wordlessly leaves the Senate again without turning his back and kind of sidesteps out. I remember that quite vividly because it was kind of, it was a very smart way to leave a room, almost comical Mm. given what had just happened. And now we see him coming out again. But the other senators weren't there on the floor. They weren't there. There was only, from what I can see, one person who was there with Caesar. And it comes back to him later on. That was Posca. Yeah. Well, presumably, yeah. So unless the continuity editing was out of whack, we are meant to assume that he's gone back when everyone else had disappeared. Yeah. Caesar is meant to be his best mate. Yeah, I think he was his best mate while he was alive, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's true. Yeah, I while mean, he was it, useful to... We're left in no doubt that he's out for his own ends <laughs> yeah. in all things. Yes. We get a a scene with Brutus and Sevilla, very emotional reactions. Brutus is in shock, I think it's fair to say, and Sevilla is gloating at their victory. I bought both their reactions in that moment, but from what I understand, it's not an accurate kind of depiction of what happened according to the sources that we've got? Well, we don't hear about them. And it's not surprising that we don't hear about him returning to his mother. But uh, as we'll see, Brutus and Cassius didn't get to hang around Rome as long as is is implied here. So it's fairly unlikely. But yeah, I agree with you. It's worked with Brutus's character. We know historically that he was a late fit into the conspiracy. Mm. It was Cassius's conspiracy, really. Mm. And that he might well have had mixed emotions about the whole thing. And it fits with Servilia's character that she is much more stoic about it and much more get your act together. Yeah, yeah. She's not empathizing at all with his... I mean, he's very good, isn't he? He's shaking, mm-hmm. which is exactly how you'd expect someone to be when they're in shock. Yeah, yeah. It was it was very uh, emotive kind of reaction. I, th- I think in the accounts that I've read, and this is mostly probably Appian, they immediately... Uh, left the Senate after killing Caesar in the theatre of Pompey, uh, went outside, tried to address the people and got chased down the hill. (laughs) Yeah. I probably mentioned in our episode on the last episode of the first series that they might well have expected to have been celebrated as tyrannicides, Mm. the saviours of the Republic. This had happened before. And uh, they would have been shocked by the reaction. Yeah. This is a different kind of dictator they're dealing with who has very much got the support of the people. One of the things I liked about this episode is that that support is its almost over-determined the amount of times we see it mm. and, and the emotion of the people and the way that Antony plays on that. Yes, yeah, he very much does. And uh, Caesar, despite uh, being nothing but a corpse in this episode, not to downplay the performance of Kieran Hines at all, uh, Kieran Hines is actually credited in the opening credits of this episode, uh, as is Indira Varma, who plays Niobe, uh, both excellent corpse work from both of them. But they both loom large over the episode, don't they? Oh, very much so. Um, Caesar gets a parting tit in the mouth, which is a a nice send-off there. Not a bad way to earn your pay, I guess. You want to talk about that right now? No. We can talk about when we get to it. Yeah. Okay. Let's 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 just all. leave that dangling over the <laughs> podcast. <laughs> it was interesting. I thought Mark Antony. Uh, eventually, we aren't explained for his delay, but I gather he was running for his life through the back streets of Rome. Eventually, goes to Artia's place, uh, where Artia, Octavia, and Octavian are preparing to make themselves scarce. Yeah, I don't think we should brush over it. He has a bit of action hero moment before that when he's escaping those trying to assassinate him. Mm. I, what's his name? Pompey. Yeah, yeah, I, I know. his first name. What's he called again? Quintus Pompey. Yeah, the made-up Pompey. He should be a big deal. He's He's been in a few episodes before this. It's Pompey's son, apparently. And yet in this episode, he's nameless thug. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I like that... Uh, Anthony takes his toga off and throws it over somebody. You could see that in a kind of modern action fight, couldn't mm, you? The, yeah, 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 yeah. Throwing a sheet over someone's head to escape. And it's then, a very kind of Jackie Chan move. Yeah, I'm going to use they, whatever I have as a weapon. And they come at him one at a time, just <laughs> yeah. like in action movies. Yeah. And, of course, he's more than up to that. Uh, but he still has to flee. Now I wish there was a good fight scene. We don't get a lot of good fight scenes in this show. <laughs> there, could, there could have been a lot of good fight scenes. But, yeah, so once he turns up to Atia's house... There's an interesting conversation where 
Atia and Mark Antony are essentially talking to each other without talking to each other. They're both disregarding what each other is saying. And Mark Antony puts the blame for Caesar's death on Brutus, Cassius, and Casca. Mm. Casca appeared in one episode, doesn't get seen again, mm-hmm. <laughs> but apparently he's still to blame. Atia blames Sevilia. I swear on the black stone, I will kill them all. Brutus and Cassius and Casca and the whole damn lot of them. They're just Sevilia's minions. This is all her doing. That was kind of interesting. I, I saw Sevilia very much as a um, a puppet string puller. Yeah. Puppeteer. Puppeteer. There we go. There's a word for that. I think while I was watching it, I commented that she was very Lady Macbeth. Mm, that's she's, a good way to put it. She's kind yes. of the, the one directing the murder. Yeah. And uh, I don't think she's going to go mad in the way that Lady Macbeth does. But it's better than the Geppetto analogy <laughs> I was going for. <laughs> <laughs> now, I think Puppet Master is also good. And it kind of gives you those two perspectives, doesn't it? That the man, Mark Antony, assumes that, that the men are in charge of their actions, because mm. he would, because, you know, officially men are in charge of their own households and they have autonomy. Whereas Atia knows the reality that there can be a woman pushing the buttons from behind yeah, yeah. and playing the men. She does it herself, so she knows exactly how that works. Yes, and and the way that this show has told us the story, and it is very much Sevilia, Lady Macbething her way through the first season. Mm. So she gives Quintus Pompey sanctuary when he comes back to Rome the first time. It's in her house and with her always standing off to the side that these conspirators meet. So she's present and she's listened to, but she's not directly involved, I guess, because of gender. Yeah, and it's playing very much on our knowledge that women were involved, certainly within households, in possibly directing, but certainly having knowledge of political intrigues and sometimes aiding in them. So very little of this gets officially written down, but we know that this was happening in the background, and Servilia and, in her way, Artia both stand in for a lot of these late Republican uh, elite women. Mm. Mm. So they plan to head north to raise an army, which yeah, you're shaking your head at and I was shaking my head at as well. No, none of that was going on. Uh, and this is where the reason that they don't need to do that is that the third figure who's going to be important in the Mark Antony Octavian kind of triumvirate, literally triumvirate, yeah. the trilogy is Lepidus, who has an army close by. Yes. Yeah. So, and, you know, so the Caesarians, if we want to call them that, as opposed to the Republicans, they don't need to go off and collect an army. The other thing to mention perhaps at this stage is that Octavian, as he now is, he should have been Octavius all the way through until this point. Yeah, even, he, in, even in Caesar's will, he's called Octavian and I've kind of gone, ah, anyway, yeah. <laughs> but that's what he's known as yeah. and I think it would make more sense to people. And he won't really call himself Octavian at this point. He could, but he wants to be the Gaius Julius Caesar, which he can now adopt as his, as his name. Yeah. But that would be very confusing if we called him that. He isn't in Rome. He's 19. Yeah. He starts to collect a private army mm. to take revenge. Yeah. It's kind of got him present and he shouldn't be, and Lepidus is not around and he should be. So when, when you say he wasn't in Rome, he was off pretty much training up for Caesar's campaign in the east. Mm. So he comes back with Agrippa. Uh, pretty soon after mm-hmm. this for the reading of the will and that sort of thing. But he's not present during uh, these early wee hours of the of the morning. But I can see why they didn't have all of that happening. It's, it's much more efficient to yeah. have him there and also means that they can have the kind of family bickering. Yeah. Those dynamics often in conflict with Artia and Octavia. So we've got all of that playing out. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mark Antony stops long enough to say we should go and get Caesar's widow, which I really liked. I like... The role that Fulvia played in this episode, if not Fulvia. Calpurnia. I like the role that Calpurnia played in this episode. Uh, where is Mark Antony's wife, Fulvia? <laughs> um, I, I think we've mentioned that before. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, another missing character. He's keen to get her, though, in terms of this script because it would look bad not to. True. Uh, while I'm not discounting that he has concerns about her as Caesar's widow and mm. possibly being in danger... There is also this image of Antony that we're building up as being very concerned about image. Yes. Uh, It's always that. How is this going to look to the people? He knows that the power comes from the people, Mm -hmm. um, that that's where the Caesareans kind of have their power base. And uh, even though kind of in his private life, he acts in a way that's often very dishonorable and would look really bad, he knows he has to project the right look. He's the ultimate politician. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that very much comes through in this episode as well. 
we also get the direct continuation of the scene where Varinus is mourning the death of Niobe, who, for those who came in late, oh, God, a lot happened. She threw herself out the window because it was found out that she was the actual mother of the child that she said was actually her grandchild and that belonged to her daughter. And Varinus was really angry about that and says at one point in this episode, I was going to kill her. I was prepared to kill her, which I guess is his right as the man of the house. Well... <laughs> I mean, look, I felt terrible even saying that, but you know, uh, it would be it, it would be questionable. It's not his right, even under the laws that would Octavia, it stand up in a court of law. It might, <laughs> Your Honor. <laughs> um, it's a private matter at this point. Yeah. It might not. It really shouldn't. Is the answer. It is a private matter at this point. It will, under Augustus, i.e. Octavian, it will become a state crime to commit adultery. Yeah. But there are very strict rules around they have to be caught in in flagrante, which is obviously not the case here. And, yeah, I mean, if someone were to challenge it, one of the daughters maybe, or at least the daughter's husband, something like that. Mm. Yeah, I think that it it might not stand up. On the other hand, Varinus is at this point very powerful. He is. Potentially, if his... He's a senator. Yeah. If his position holds, because, Mm. well, ultimately in this episode, Caesar's policies aren't swept away, he could probably get the right advocate and and sweep through it. Yeah. Cicero's not doing much. Cicero's not going to work for him. (laughs) So he's there mourning the the death of his wife, angry at himself, angry at her, angry at a lot of people, really angry. So his sister-in-law, Niobe's sister, comes in with the two girls and he throws them around a bit, stops himself short of hitting them, but curses them and then leaves. Well, he did hit his daughter. Ah, oh, he threw it to the ground. Yeah. And he's standing there with his hand kind of back and he stops himself and he, he curses her instead. Yeah, I think there's a lot being said there about toxic masculinity, I guess we'd call it now. Yeah. Um, the idea that the Roman man has the ultimate power within his own household. He does technically have the right life or death over everyone within the household. And uh, I have to say, I thought they played it in some ways quite cleverly because at the end of the previous series, he looked like he'd kind of spent his anger and it was dissolved in his grief over Niobe. Mm. And he looks at the child and the last thing she has said is the child is not at fault. I didn't think it was going to go that way, but I guess they were trying to be realistic about how much anger he would have because this has disgraced his position as paterfamilias. Yes, yeah. So he stumbles around the streets of Rome in a bit of a a state, um, shock and grief and anger and everything, gets chanted at by a blind oracle and then nutted and robbed. I don't know what was going on there. (laughs) (laughs) It's dangerous on the streets of Rome. Maybe that was meant to be the takeaway. I wrote down in my notes, what does this mean? And (laughs) if you could type shrug, you would have. So, yeah, yeah, no, it was um, a a very kind of strange thing. Uh, Played by the actor Tim Barlow, that uh, blind monk. I've seen him in a lot of things, but can't pinpoint anything Mm. in particular. So... I mean, I guess it was to take him out of the plot for long enough for what happens next to happen. Yeah. Otherwise, he might have gone back home. I guess so. Yeah. There's a lot of pieces that need to move around. We need to see a lot that's going on with Mark Antony and the conspirators. So, yeah, possibly. Uh, Meanwhile, we also get a scene of Pullo as well, who proposes marriage in a, a very awkward fashion. I know I didn't get her started off in the right foot, killing your man and all. And I'm sorry for that, but... I'll just come straight out with it. I have a question to ask you. It's like they've set themselves up to make this as awkward as possible. Yeah, yeah. It? Sorry, I killed line. your man. Does he actually say that? Sorry, I killed you. Pretty Sorry, much, I killed yeah. your man. But will you marry me? You don't have to. It's not a command. But would you like to get married? The smudge of dirt, smudge of dirt on the nose. And I wish my wedding was that simple. <laughs> what a big affair was it? Oh, just what wedding isn't? Yeah. Uh, no, Roman marriages could be very simple. It's yeah. pretty much the acquiescence of both parties. Um, and, that, and that's what but, that was. But yeah. they might not be. They can be big celebrations too, but they don't have to be. And there's no 
particular form. You know, you don't need someone presiding over it like we do. Yeah. He also promises to put a roof over her head and yeah. buy her nice things, which I've watched Pullo for the past season of the show and he's showed no indication that he can do either happen. of those things. Maybe a good woman's going to turn him around. It's just, if you know, if Verena's had a kennel, Pullo would have been sleeping in it, mm. you know? It was that kind of guy. But in this episode, it is like that Pullo and Verena's have changed places, haven't they? Because Pullo's been very reactive throughout. Yeah. And now it's Verena's with the anger and Pullo who's being a bit more reflective. I, that's maybe a good way to look at it, and that could be the way going forward. Maybe Pullo has realised that Verenus actually needs me to be the adult of the relationship and, you know, to be the calm one. Considering he, he ends this episode covered in blood, surrounded by dead bodies in a in a bar, yeah. maybe calm is oh, well, really yeah, the... Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess that um, in terms of the, the bigger picture history, because I have such a poor memory of the series as opposed to knowing what's going to happen next in the the historical narrative. Mm. I'm sort of wondering where this is going to situate them in relation to, spoiler if you don't know, there's going to be another war. Mm. Oh, do you want to make a prediction? (laughs) Oh, about them or about the history generally? No, no, no. Make a prediction about them. Where do you think? Well, I'm guessing they're going to end up fighting for Octavian stroke Mark Antony against the Tyrannicides. And then where? Octavian. Interesting. Could be completely wrong. Interesting. I'm pretty sure I remember. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You're not going to tell me, are you? That's no, no, of good. course not. No. I'm just going. I've, I've now got this on the record. Okay. <laughs> well, maybe not with Verenus, but Polo seems very loyal to Octavian. Yeah, we get a nice scene with them later on this episode. But he has throughout. You know, yes. Yes. Of, he was there to train Octavian in all kinds of ways mm. uh, from very early <laughs> on. And <laughs> nice. <laughs> Classy. (laughs) (laughs) That's what the series did. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, In some ways, from that, no idea which episode it was, but it was early, Artia has sort of put him in a a loco parentis position. Yeah, well, well, these are the sort of things that, you know, assumably his father would teach him. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... Uh, And it's been delegated to, you know, an ex-soldier. Which I I know we're straying away from this episode a bit, but um, for Artia's purposes, that's perfect, of course, because Pullo can't possibly... He's never going to have the rank to outrank her. Mm -hmm. So he can be a male role model without being any threat to her. Mm -hmm. Back to the episode. uh, Calpurnia is mourning over Caesar's lifeless corpse after Posca drags it through the streets of Rome, uh, not on a litter, no, apparently he was on a litter carried by four people. Should have been, or three people, or something like that. Yeah, more than one anyway. But again, you can see why they did it. Posca has been there also from the start, out mm. in Gaul, mm. being very close to Caesar, as we know was potentially the way with slaves, at least from the point of view of the elites writing about them, that they could have this close relationship. And we've enjoyed the sort of slightly comic banter where Posca would tell Caesar the truth. Yeah was in a position to point out to him what the effect of his actions might be and it might not be a good idea to act in this way. Yeah. So having Posca do it, there's a lot more pathos. Yes. And it's also like the dictator of Rome has been brought to this, mm. put on a cart. Yeah, yeah. The tyrannicides, Brutus, Cassius, etc. what they would have expected to happen is for the corpse to be thrown into the Tiber. This is what had happened to previously assassinated officials. It it happens going forward as well (laughs) in the imperial (laughs) period. Yeah, 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 exactly. Dragged on hooks. Yeah, yeah, it gets quite nasty. Yeah, Yeah. it it happens, I mean... And and families all hunted down as well, so, you know, no wonder Artia was kind of getting ready to make flight. (laughs) So there's a kind of in-between that happens in this series in between him being treated as as you might expect of uh, someone of his position mm-hmm. and what the uh, assassins would have expected, which is a complete dishonouring of his body, that he at least is taken care of by somebody who clearly loves him. Yeah. So he's mourned over by Calpurnia and uh, it's at this scene that essentially she asks him if he wants milk in his coffee. <sighs> I, yeah. I, I, don't, Again, look, I don't know how to put this and, and have any class, so I'm just not going to try. Well, uh, he, she asks a woman to stand forward and pour breast milk directly from her breast into his mouth. Yeah. I cannot find any source for this. I think this is HBOization. Yeah. Uh, Can you see at least what they were maybe saying or trying to say about Mother Earth maybe get, or yeah, something like that? People have tried to interpret it like that, I think. He's the son of Rome, a son of Rome. 
you know, the women, it is their job to, to clean up the body. We mm. saw quite a lot of that and to mourn for him. And there's a lot of mourning and wailing. And I believe there is a reference to women beating their breasts so much that they bleed. Yes. Well, I didn't chase that down, but I think, I think it's slightly obscure. But that doesn't seem that close to this. Yeah, I, I think it was an HBO thing, I'm afraid. Yeah, we, we see later on during his uh, his his funeral, if we want to call it that, the beating of chess kind of thing going mm. on behind them with mm. chanting and what have you. Mm. So Mark Antony Atia et al., they show up and Calpurnia insists on the reading of the will. Yeah, can I just say, just before we get to the will, yeah. that Calpurnia complains that nobody else has been to visit. Yes. Which is a very kind of anachronistic reading, I think, of what happens when someone dies. So we might expect in our cultures for people to congregate and to mourn and to support the, the surviving family. And this doesn't seem to be what happened in Rome. It's the job of the family so maybe Artia would have turned up to help with the preparation of the body. Yeah. Outsiders would have been kept out for that process. That says more about the plot line that Calpurnia is saying people are avoiding us because they don't know how thing, how the cards are going to fall. Yeah, right, yeah. Like Which ne- makes sense in terms of the plot. It does, it does. And th- they make comments a number of times about how quiet it is mm. when they'd expect more noise. Mm. I think that might be Mark Antony who says that. Uh, so the reading of the will... Yeah, that happened in private and in public. It would have been nice to see the public version of that because as the will, as it's read, it is clear that Caesar leaves money to every citizen of Rome. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, of course, that makes him even more popular with the people, which is important in this episode. Uh, it, so, ac- it actually did happen, but it was it was mentioned and, and brushed off kind of thing as in, you know, what is the good stuff in the will? So 75 <laughs> and, denarii and, to every enrolled citizen. And doesn't Artia say what a waste of money? Yes, yes, yes. Very <laughs> much so. Why are you giving money to the, the plebs? He made provisions for his honest and dutiful wife. And then everything else goes to Octavian. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it said Octavian. Lawful son and sole heir. Uh, so... That's technically not how it played out. It's very close, but this is the f- point of, you know, another third party being involved. Was somebody else named uh, there heir were, in case? There were a couple of others. Yeah. Uh, again, it's a slightly slimmed down version of the will. So there were contingencies put in place in case something had happened to Octavian. So others were mentioned. Yeah. But essentially, the result of Caesar's will in history was that Octavian became his major heir. He inherited all his money, inherited his titles. He was adopted as his son. He does very well out of Caesar's death. Decimus Brutus. Yes. So trusted by Caesar that he was entered into his will as the second heir, but was partner in the conspiracy Mm -hmm. of the other Brutus and Cassius. Mm -hmm. So there you go. Caesar doesn't know how to pick him. (laughs) Yeah, Decimus Brutus being one of the potential heirs. Mm. Yeah, it doesn't say much for Caesar's judgment. Sir, not appearing in this series. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the other thing is Posca gets his freedom. And considering that Posca was the one reading out the will, and we don't know in real life that Posca gets his freedom, I like to think that it was Posca just slipping that line in. <laughs> and Posca gets his freedom and his setup in all ways that he needs to be. It is a recognition <laughs> that Will's often did set free. In Caesar's case, he would have had so many slaves. Yes. He could have set free whole swathes of them. Yes. And this is very typical. It was nice for Posca to get his freedom. Yes. Uh, Even if he did give it to himself. (laughs) (laughs) At this point, Octavian comes up with a plan to outmaneuver Brutus. Antony, listen. Brutus is in a legal bind. I think we can force him into making a deal with us. Go on. Brutus must declare Caesar a tyrant, else the act of killing Caesar is murder. But all the acts of a tyrant are unlawful, including those appointing Brutus as praetor, Cassius as proconsul, and so forth. And so? If Brutus honours the law, he loses all rank and position. Lawyers prattle. I don't think so. I have question marks over this. From what I know, it the plan as it plays out for the rest of this episode did happen, broadly speaking. But I think it's another case of, you know, we've talked about this sort of thing before. This is something that actually happened in Roman history. We're going to attribute it as a great idea of Octavian's in order to build him up as Augustus. Yeah. I don't actually mind that too much. I mean, as we've mentioned, he wasn't there. He was out east. Yeah. So it doesn't make sense if you're going to just follow the history as we know it. But... In the end, they have to show us an Octavian who can become Augustus, who clearly was very wily, mm. like knew how to play 
the people of Rome and the politicians around him who to pick as friends and enemies in the main. So I think it's fine. Okay. He's, he's very young. He looks very young, and yet he's making really quite clever decisions. Yes. It, it's taking a bit away from Mark Antony, though. There's a little bit of a sense of broad brushstrokes, as I think there has to be throughout, that Antony is... He's kind of always on the side of let's use the sword and get this over with. He's a bit Polo-ish in some ways. Mm. He's angry as well. There's a lot of anger in this episode, as I guess there should be. There are two very important dead characters at the center of it. And, of course, he's nearly been killed as well. Mm. So he and Octavian are set up as kind of opposites of Octavian's the politician. He can see a way through to winning power, not having to shed blood, at least immediately. Antony just wants to go out there, yeah. get an army, kill them all. Yeah, yeah. He's ready with the fish hook. It reduces him to somebody who's very reactive. It's like he's not thinking through what would work out best politically. Yeah. On the other hand, I think that we as the audience, I don't know, I think I sort of see Antony's point of view. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah I yeah. think we're much more on the, oh, Antony's glamorous. and Octa- I mean, politicking in the background, as we can see with Cicero, is never never a glamorous look, is it? Mm-hmm. But points to Antony for actually listening to Octavian's plan and going along with it. Antony was still advocating leaving Rome, and it was Octavian who said, no, we, we should stay. Mother, we are staying. <laughs> so, mm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a real playing out of who's in charge there. Yeah, and, and uh, Octavian's the one who pulls rank and mm. says, well, technically I'm the man in the house. It's my yep. decision for the whole family. And we did see in Series 1 his ceremony where he became a man, you know, mm. put away the... He did. Arty is not used to that. No. <laughs> Mark Antony takes Octavian's plan, and he calls Brutus and Cassius on their bluff. So we now get a, a scene where Sevilla, Brutus, and Cassius welcome Cicero into the house. Cicero is very happy with how things are played out. He's very congratulatory, uh, very praising them, and lamenting in some ways that he was left out of the action. Immortals, I say. You noble men have carved your names deep in the eternal stone. That is very high praise indeed. I would embrace you all, but I'm desolated that you did not enlist me in your cohort of heroes to wield the Liberator's knife. What joy you have denied me. Oh, forgive us. Well, we rather thought you'd prefer not to know. Kind of took me by surprise, considering how carefully and how neutrally he's been playing things up until this point. Mm. Look, I think this series has really run with the idea of Cicero as fence-sitter and then kind of coward, yeah. really. It paints him as a coward and he'll he'll say whatever is the right thing to, to whichever group he's with. Yeah. And it, it's, it's sort of a shame because we can see from Cicero's own letters that he really wanted to be the hero of the moment by being the moderator. Yeah. But uh, I guess it's very easy to say with the, from the perspective of, of knowing how it all works out, that was never going to happen. This was going to come to conflict. He wanted to avoid that war. He was trying really hard. He thought he could be the mediator between Caesar and Pompey. And because he wasn't able to form that position, I think he's still kind of in mourning for not having been able to be the hero of the hour because he's not a warrior, so he can't really participate in that way. Mm. We also know that he did write a letter saying that he was disappointed that he hadn't been part of the conspiracy. So in the end, it looks like he was anti-Caesar, very clear by that point, and wanted to try and maintain the Republic through the senatorial group. All right, Uh, so so you've got some of this letter here. Did you want to read it out? Yeah, so what Cicero's saying there in that scene seems to be very strongly based on a letter that he wrote to Gaius Trebonius. They they very much cribbed dialogue from this. Yeah, they did. (laughs) This is from the 2nd of February, 43 BCE, which is ironically around the time that Trebonius was killed. Mm. (laughs) I'm not sure he ever read this letter. Okay. Remember, Trebonius had been on Caesar's side, but had ended up being one of the uh, tyrannicides. I don't know if we've talked about that before, but that's who he is. So Cicero says, How I could wish that you had invited me to that most glorious banquet on the Ides of March. That's a delicious way of describing it, isn't Mm. it? We should have had no leavings. Nothing left over. (laughs) While as it is, we are having such a trouble with them that the magnificent service which you men then did the state leaves room for some grumbling. 
In fact, for Antony's having been taken out of the way by you, the best of men, oh, I should mention it was Trebonius who delayed Antony at the door. Oh, okay. And that it was by your kindness that this pest still survives. I sometimes do feel, though perhaps I have no right to do so, a little angry with you, for you have left behind an amount of trouble which is greater for me than everyone else put together. Mm. The two things really coming out of that are, I wanted to be part of this conspiracy, he says in retrospect, whether he would have chosen to, had he been asked, we don't know. Mm. And why is Antony still alive? Antony's a big pain in my ass. Yeah. Yeah. And we know that, that Cicero... We, he does many sentence speeches. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. By this point, you know, he's well into a series of diatribes against Antony, which I would have loved to see enacted because uh, David Bamber playing Cicero is so good. I guess I'm seeing this as uh, a bit further on than we are, given that letter comes from not that long before we're going to say goodbye to Cicero. Yeah. But they're playing with timelines. This letter's clearly been sent, you know, a while after the current mm. events in the show. Mark Antony puts Octavian's plan, not crediting Octavian, of course, but he puts it to Brutus and Cassius. Cicero is in the room as well, and off to the side, Sevilia. So... The plan is that a general amnesty, that is the word that is used against the killers, and Caesar's commands being upheld, which means they all keep their current ranks. There doesn't need to be another election because, you know, I think Cassius is co-consul and somebody's a speaker or something like that. So they all want to keep their current positions, which are positions that were given out by a dictator. So if yeah. one of Caesar's decisions go, then clearly they all have to go. I like the way that this played on human nature, which I think says a lot about how politics always happens, which mm. is it's very contingent upon what will benefit those in power at that time. Yes. Not yep. necessarily what is even in their long-term interests, but certainly not in the interests of their country. That's not what they're thinking about here. They're thinking about how can I keep the power I've got? Yes. And I can well believe that that was happening in some form. Once Mark Antony leaves, there's a, a discussion between the conspirators that are left and Brutus being very much shocked that an attempt was made on Mark Antony's mm. life. So that comes down to the principle of we are only taking out the tyrant. That's what this yeah. was all supposed to be about. We weren't taking out our enemies. Yeah. We are getting rid of the enemy of Rome. Yeah. And once again, we've got Cato's been dead for a while and Brutus has kind of taken up his position as I, I am a man of principle. Mm. And so when Servilia seems to be on the side of taking Antony out, he does say to her, you too, mother. Which I, I thought was a great line. <laughs> Definitely a play on yeah, Et tu Brute, which we didn't get. Little nod to Shakespeare then. It is the only rational thing he to do. He has broken no capital law. And he offers a truce which will preserve the public order. We have no right to take his life. Damn the law in his case. He's too dangerous to live. You exaggerate him. He is a vulgar beast. Without Caesar, he will, he will destroy himself soon enough. He is. He is a guest in my house. He is not in the house. He is on the street. You too, mother. And Mark Antony walks out and very casually as an afterthought just killed Quintus Pompey, who, mm. may I just say again, is not named in this episode. Just, <laughs> She's really oh, bothering really, you. really got to me. Who is this nameless goon? Is he a senator or is he, you know, somebody who's come up before and then I've looked it up and I've gone, oh, that, that's, that's Quintus Pompey. He was meant to be a big deal in the first season, wasn't he? Maybe it's an indication of the fact that Servilia's the only one that recognises him as important at all. Yeah. Nobody else does. I thought that scene really showed a version of Antony which was, you know, he's got nerve because there's a whole ring of thugs hanging around who, yeah. are, who are part of Quintus Pompey's backup, but they don't dare move. Yeah, no, there's a, there's a lot of confidence there, which I kind of don't think is earned. <laughs> because, you know, Caesar had confidence but was still dispatched. Yeah. There is no reason why that sort of thing still can't happen to Mark Antony yeah, yeah. if it can happen to Caesar. And no, it's, it's very much part of the dramatic conceit, I think. Yeah. And we sort of enjoy it, but at the same time, it's not at all realistic. <laughs> Pullo, who has heard of the death of Caesar and, and stolen a horse, <laughs> just casually stolen a horse and come it's back. It's the equivalent of stealing a car, isn't it? <laughs> when you need to be somewhere in a modern film. <laughs> <It's> just... <laughs> 
hotwire a car and yep. off he goes. Uh, so he hotwires a horse and goes back to Rome. And uh, he's talking to Varinus and trying to get him back into some semblance of functionality. Uh, says a very interesting line. He says, the curse wasn't effective. You didn't kill an animal on it, did you? There you go then. So clearly there's ways of making curse binding. I think that was a term that he might have used, curse yeah, you, binding. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. he hasn't carried out the whole ritual. Yeah. But for the Romans, even what you say is important. So, yeah. For, I, mean, I can see why Varinus isn't totally convinced by this. So there's two funerals now that we have mm. in this episode. Uh, they are very different affairs, which I liked how they edited that together from mm. one to the other. It was very deliberate. Clearly. Yeah. I, I think that Caesar's was actually smaller than it would have been. Mm. We do see a lot of people. We do see a huge bonfire, but it was also understating what would have happened. Mm. In the account we have... Oh gosh, I think it's Suetonius. He was—he wasn't just marched out or, or taken out on a bier. He was in a kind of replica of the Temple of Venus Genetrix yes. from his forum. Yeah, which sounds astounding to me, and I would have loved to see that. It's a piece of theatre, and of course, we don't get to see all of it. We get it reported later, some of it, especially the speeches. I thought they were quite clever about—I presume this was a bit of a money-saving tool—that. Anthony opens the doors and you just hear the roar of the crowd. Yeah, and it's just white outside. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, th- I thought it might have been as well, but at the same time you do get to see some scope of the crowd when they do that yeah. kind of crane shot mm-hmm. uh, on his funeral and mm. you see the, the burning pier in the middle and then just a mob of people like anger slash mm. mourning throwing extra bits of wood on the fire. Mm. I mean, we know that the people were angry, but they might also be there recalling a little bit an event from 52 when one of Caesar's at the time allies, Clodius, is murdered yeah. and the crowd is so angry they burn down the Senate House, yes. which is why none of that stuff we saw happening in the Senate House should be there, <laughs> including the death of Caesar. That kind of looked like it was appealing back to that a little bit to me and the presence of fire, although the fire's burning his body there. Yeah. I do think that, you know, now I know why Rome burned down so often if you're having public funerals like that in the forum all the time. A lot of the times it was accidental, but yeah. 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 No good safety protocols, clearly. <laughs> and Niobe's funeral, uh, very much a muted affair just mm. with Varinus and Pullo, really. Mm. The daughters have disappeared, haven't they? Oh, well, yes. That was more of what I expected for someone of that position in society. I don't know, Varinus is a senator. You'd think he could get a bit more. He's a newly minted senator. Yeah. The more mourners you have, yeah. the more honour there is. And I guess... Yeah, but the way that she died... Yeah. Uh, not that suicide is... Uh, there's no shame as there No, I, I didn't mean later. that specifically. I just meant the circumstances around it yeah. and everything. And uh, yeah, no, that was really sad. Mm. So, so now we get a scene in which Brutus and Cassius are told by Mark Antony, look, it's not really safe for you to stick around. You can go to the east. There's some nice grain silos out there, I hear. Uh, you should go and see the sites. And it's essentially giving them an exit. Getting them off the scene so he can take control. Yes. I think that's how we're meant to read it. Oh, definitely. And Brutus knows that. <laughs> Brutus and Cassius both know that they've been outmaneuvered. Yeah, I mean, I had really mixed feelings about that, partly because we talk so much about Caesar and how obsessed he is with the grain supply. So it's not unimportant. Oh, it's not unimportant. <laughs> but also east. Yeah. Like, that's a place that you could gain a lot of power. There are armies there. And they're not very specific other than East, I don't think. Yeah. But there's precedent for it. Caesar's done it. Pompey did it. Crassus did it. Well, yeah. He's taken his army to Parthia, wasn't he? Yeah. So Mm. armies in the East. So I guess wherever you send Brutus and Cassius, they could raise an army because, Mm. you know, Pompey went to Africa to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's there's soldiers everywhere in the Roman Empire. We also get uh, peppered throughout the rest of this episode, kind of tantalizing glimpses of how big the funeral could have been as in the eulogy that Mark Antony presented. So in real life, my understanding is that Mark Antony did give a eulogy. Brutus didn't because he had already left Rome by this point and gone east. Indeed. They've mixed up the timelines. And I I think, again, so we can have more of Brutus, which I'm I'm never not a fan of. But also they wanted to show you, I think, the complete outmaneuvering of him. Yeah. And also have a very awkward funeral, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and also to play on, you know, they do construct Brutus as this very honourable person, 
but we don't see it. We get told about it, as we'll see in a minute, but he doesn't connect with the people mm. in the way that Caesar could and the way that Antony is shown to do. Yeah, yeah. Well, see, so, so the other way that we get through this is uh, through the retelling of one of Erastus Fullman's men who is in the bar at the end, uh, very much telling the story of the view of the audience who mm. are hearing these two eulogies. And it sounds like Brutus is giving the Shakespeare version of his eulogy. <laughs> yeah. so, so in Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, Brutus does give a eulogy of sorts, doesn't he? And it sounds like he was delivering that one to the audience. Oi, 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 right, the place is fucking packed, yeah? yeah. Takes me half an hour to fight me way to the front and up steps Brutus. <laughs> right? And he goes, blah, blah, blah. The law this and the republic that. And the 12 bloody tables. I couldn't understand half of it. It sounds like it was very long. Their attention span clearly wasn't long enough for this. And also, Brutus is, he's obviously, he's a trained orator. We know that. Mm. He just is depicted as not having that connection. Yeah. So he's kind of criticized as going on and on and on, isn't he? My favorite bit was Troilus saying, 12 tables, blah, 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 or similar. Like Br Brutus has clearly been reflecting back to the first laws of Rome you yes. know, that were laid down in 450 BC and giving them a, a history lesson. And he hasn't managed to ignite the spark of recognition in his audience. He's bored them to death. I think uh, maybe many an ancient history student might have been thinking of a boring lecturer or two at that point. So he doesn't have the common touch. Mm. And th there's a lot of polarization being shown here. Yes. That these people are the power base for the Caesareans and Brutus is never going to get them. He needs to go somewhere else to, to win favor. And uh, Brutus is very annoyed about this. Mark Antony mm. essentially used the opportunity to rile up the people yeah. of Rome and really get them angry at the assassins. That's straight from Appian, isn't it, that account? Yeah. More so, or less. Yeah, pretty much. Quite right. Mark Antony turns it into an opportunity for propaganda. Mm -hmm. This is in Appian's Civil War, Book 2, 146. Carried away by an easy transition to extreme passion, he, i.e. Antony, uncovered the body of Caesar, lifted his robe on the point of a spear, this is his toga, and shook it aloft, pierced with dagger thrusts. So this is the toga he was murdered in. Yeah. And red with the dictator's blood. Whereupon the people, like the chorus in a play, mourned with him in the most sorrowful manner, and from sorrow became filled again with anger. Would have been good to see, but, you know, they used the scene well, I think. Yeah, I was disappointed not to see it happen. I absolutely get that part of why they did it as a reporting on it, reporting on something that happened off stage, yeah. which is actually very typical of, uh, of ancient plays. <laughs> yeah, certainly murders happen off stage. I've just come back from the war. <laughs> <laughs> um, but was it again not wanting to need that number of people in, on Possibly. set? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think there were, might have been ways of doing it. Anyway, they chose not to, but we do very much get the idea that Antony has and, and you know the Romans have form on this as well from their earliest myths bodies have been used in this way as kind of this is the victim that we need to fight for yeah. this is how the Republic came about Lucretia who's been raped and has committed suicide they bring her into the, the forum and say you know this is what the kings are doing Yeah. so it's a way of getting rid of tyrants we now pretty much finish up the episode with Varinus trying to resolve what happened to his family and finding out that they'd been taken by Erastus Fullman for the many slights that they committed against him in the first season. Which I've kind of forgotten now, but they were there. Uh, look, yeah. there was a lot going on, you know. Can we really get down to who slighted who, I think, at that point between those three? So they go and confront Erastus Fullman in the bar. We do get that nice uh, scene with a character with a Cockney accent. That was Cockney, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Yeah? Okay. All right. Good. I'm not just insulting Cockneys everywhere mm. and um, the guy who's the chimney sweep from Mary Poppins. So uh, that... That meant... wasn't Cockney. <laughs> Terrible Cockney. <laughs> Oi, don't sully the good name of... Who was the actor? Dick Van Dyke. Don't sully the good name of Dick Van Dyke. This man is named Troilus, mm. uh, who was named after a Trojan prince from the Iliad. Not named on screen, but, you know, you have Google for these sort of things. <laughs> Erastus Fullman is um, very much agitated by all of this, and he has kind of takes a, a funny stance of you know where he he comes down on his politics. He doesn't really like Mark Antony making a show of things. Mm. I think that was the the general kind of thing. 
I got the feeling you also didn't like Troilus talking about it in this disrespectful way. Yes, yeah. So he doesn't like the kind of lack of respect generally. But, I mean, I think we've spoken about this before. He's performing the role very much of a kind of mafioso godfather type. Yes. Like he has his standards, but I don't know if nice is the right word, but the nice irony of I have these principles, but I'll casually murder or carry off and torture people. Yeah, you know. it's, it seemed kind of a mixed stance considering what he's done slash about to do. Mm. We've talked about that with Lork and Kranich, yeah. uh, who I, I guess the listeners will hear about in the episode after this one when I play the interview. <laughs> he goes and has a nice bath and a relaxing kind of sauna. And you can hear Varinus and Pullo just dispatching everybody mm. in that room. A, a very bloody and dramatic scene played for laughs to some extent. Yeah. Well, we don't get to see the dispatching though again, do we? Just you the don't. aftermath. You don't. But but wow, what an aftermath seeing yeah. Fullman come out of that room with Varinus and just Pullo standing there casually going, hey, all right, you're all right there, everyone. Just, you know, me surrounded by bodies covered yeah. in blood with my sword. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. those who like to watch fight scenes, maybe this is what you were referring to at the beginning. That was an opportunity for, because there's the two of them against a whole crowd. I know, I know. Yeah. But on the other hand, some of this has nothing to do with uh, pointing out parallels with ancient Rome, but I guess there's a certain realism about it in that Polo and Varinus are just covered in blood, mm. their faces and, and clothes. Yeah, yeah. It's, there's, there's no kind of pulling back from the fact that this is a nasty action. Yeah, a lot of raw emotion in this uh, scene. And it's revealed that Erastus Foreman took Varinus's daughters, raped them, killed them, threw their body in the Tiber. Just a very... Brutal dispatching, and we get Varinus kind of, you know, pulling his sword back, and then it quickly cuts away with a mm. thunk. I have to say, I think it was, um, I don't normally like drawn out torture or nasty deaths, but I thought Fulman deserved worse. Mm. <laughs> yeah. He's a nasty, nasty character. Yeah. And I would leave the episode there, I guess, but we do get. Varinus and Paulo walking through the streets of Rome, covered in blood, mm. everybody kind of giving them a wide berth and standing mm. away from them, carrying the head of Erastus Fullman. That mm. possibly has more to do with the wide berth. And then walking up some stairs, and we just get the most amazing crane shot of the Aventine with a kind of muddy Tiber off to the side. It just looked amazing. Mm. So I liked how squalid it looked. Really sort of good squalid shot. squalid and beautiful. Yeah, somehow. yeah. Um, which I guess is maybe how to sum up the series. The, the, <laughs> squalid, the attitude, but be- squalid but beautiful. <laughs> the attitude towards Rome. That it is a combination of these things and they're not pulling away from showing us that sordid, squalid aspect of it. You've been listening to Raising Standards, an occasional rewatch podcast of HBO's Rome with Rhiannon Evans and Matt Smith. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you may cast your pod please leave a review. They are always very appreciated. You can like Raising Standards on the Emperors of Rome Facebook page, and you can follow both myself and Rhiannon on Twitter. Rhiannon is at Dr. Rhiannon Evans. I'm at Nightlight Guy, and the podcast is at Rome Podcast. That's it today for Raising Standards. So until the next episode, I'm Matt Smith. You've been fantastic, and thanks for listening.